I'd like to invite you to take a Bible and turn to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 22. Luke, chapter 22. We uh, observe the sacrament of the Lord's Supper about eight times a year in our, our services, either in the morning or in the evening. And at least once a year, I try to give more of an extended time of teaching about the nature and the purpose of the Lord's Supper, and that's what I intend to do today. So in Luke, chapter 22 we come to when Jesus himself instituted the Lord's Supper. I'll begin reading in verse 1 of Luke 22. Hear God's word. Now the feast of unleavened bread, called the Passover, was approaching, and the chief priests and the teachers of the law were looking for some way to get rid of Jesus, for they were afraid of the people. Then Satan entered Judas, called Hiscariot, one of the twelve, And Judas went to the chief priest and the officers of the temple guard and discussed with them how he might betray Jesus. They were delighted and agreed to give him money. He consented and watched for an opportunity to hand Jesus over to them when no crowd was present. Then came the day of unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and make preparations for us to eat Passover. Where do you want us to prepare for it, they asked. He replied, As you enter the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him to the house that he enters, and say to the owner of the house, The teacher asks, Where is the guest room? Where I may uh, eat the Passover with my disciples. He will show you a large upper room, all furnished. Make preparations there. They left and found things just as Jesus had told them, so they prepared the Passover. When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table, and he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. And after taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among you. For I tell you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread gave thanks, broke it, and gave it to them, saying, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. But the hand of him who is going to betray me is with mine on the table. The Son of Man will go as it has been decreed, but woe to the man who betrays him. They began to question among themselves which of them it might be who would do this. Let's pray together. Our Father, we ask now, as we come before you and your word, you've you've said that we do not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from your mouth. And our souls are hungry, so we ask that you might feed us now, uh, Father, in Jesus' name, amen. Regardless of where in the world and, and when in history, if you are around Christian churches, what ties us all together through history and various cultures is the Lord's Supper. And I think it's important periodically to revisit the Bible uh, and particularly where Jesus instituted uh, this. Uh, it was during the Passover, and you cannot separate the Lord's Supper from Passover, at least to know its historical context. The Jews would come to Jerusalem each year for this annual observance. A Passover was a meal that was celebrated by the Jews in obedience to God's command going back to Exodus 12. If you want to read the roots of Passover, go to Exodus 12. 
It was also called the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Uh, It was symbolic, very symbolic of several things. Symbolic of their bondage and slavery for 400 years in Egypt. Uh, Symbolic of their deliverance from slavery by God's mighty hand. And it also was a time to rejoice in the hope of the promised Messiah, who had uh, the Redeemer who would come. Now, that's what's happening in this chapter, preparation for Passover. I want to begin in verse 7, just to skip over the first part about Judas and so forth. But when we come to the day now that Jesus is telling his disciples to go and prepare the Passover meal, it's Thursday. It's Thursday of that week. Jesus would be crucified the next day. And so this is the, the night, the late afternoon and the night before. Earlier in the day, he had gone to the temple. He had probably preached there in the morning. Then later, he had sent two of his disciples, Peter and John, into the city. He told them they'd find a man carrying a pitcher of water. That man would guide them to a house where they were to prepare for the Passover meal. Now it's in the evening. And Jesus and his disciples uh, are gathered around a table. It says they are reclining at table. That was the, um, the way they would prepare for a meal. They would rest on their left elbow and on your left side. Your feet would be away from the table. Your head and your arms would be right up by the table. So Jesus would have been at the head of the table. At the Passover meal, it would be presided over by a host, uh, typically a father or a grandfather or even a rabbi. In this case, Jesus is their teacher. He is the one who will preside over the Passover meal. We can only assume he wanted the fellowship and comfort especially since he knew what was getting ready to happen the next day, the torturous death he would go through. Now, I don't know about you, but if I've got something I dread happening later in the week, I, I have a hard time functioning with much joy leading up to that. So can, we can only imagine what was going through his mind, and yet at that time he wants the fellowship and the comfort uh, not only of, of God the Father but also of these other disciples. Luke doesn't describe the Passover meal in detail. Uh, He just mentions that it it takes place. But I want to tell you what would have happened from my study and from having watched the Passover by some of our uh, believing Jewish brethren uh, who have demonstrated it. The Passover meal typically would be around four cups of wine. Those were kind of the organizing principles. And the first cup was somewhat of a preliminary cup of wine. It was poured. And the host who was presiding over the meal would take that cup He would give thanks to God, uh, and he would refer to this first cup of wine as the fruit of the vine, the fruit of the vine. And then he would take a mixture of of bitter herbs. He would dip those in salt water, and they would pass those around, and everyone at the table would receive a small portion of these, these bitter herbs. Then a second cup of wine was poured, but no one would drink of it yet. And the host... Uh, with that second cup of wine would remind all the participants there of God's promises that had been given to their, their ancient ancestor Abraham. The host would recall God's faithfulness at their deliverance, the exodus from Egypt, of how God gave them the law, the Ten Commandments at Mount Sinai. And then they would sing. They would sing from the Psalms, Psalm 113, in Psalm 114, and they would sing those psalms to express their praise and thanksgiving to God for his mighty acts of power and deliverance from their slavery and bondage in in Egypt. Then they would drink that second cup 
of wine. Then comes the main part of the meal. The host would explain that the bitter herbs that he had passed out earlier, that he had distributed to everyone, that they show forth the bitterness of Israel's affliction in Egypt. And on the table would be unleavened bread. And that was symbolic. The unleavened bread was symbolic of how God had told them to leave Egypt in haste. In that very night of the Passover, they were told to go. And they did not even have time to prepare loaves of leavened bread. So this bread, this unleavened bread, there on the table is called the bread of affliction. Besides the bread and the herbs, there's also the the meat, the lamb, the meat from the Passover lamb, which of course represented how God had passed over the households and spared the lives of the firstborn in the households where the blood of the lamb had been sprinkled on the door frames. And so at that point you would begin eating. And the person presiding would take these two large cakes of unleavened bread and he would break them into pieces and he would distribute those. And you'd only receive pieces because that represented your poverty in Egypt, that you were so impoverished that you did not have entire loaves but only pieces. And he would give thanks and he would take, you would take, everyone there at the table would take the bitter herbs and you would put those between the pieces of the unleavened bread and you would dip that into a puree of dates and raisins and vinegar and then you would eat that with the Passover lamb. Now much time would have passed by, I'm going quickly, but it, this could have taken literally uh, an hour or two up to this point. And then the third cup of wine is poured and it's called the cup of blessing. And with a cup of blessing, a special prayer of thanksgiving is given. And they remember with gladness how in the desert God had ratified by the blood of bulls his, his covenant. And Moses and the 70 elders could ascend up to the mountain into the visible presence of God. And they then at the table, the Passover meal, would celebrate the anticipated blessing. And they would eat and drink. Now they come toward the end and they would sing again. They would sing two more psalms. They would sing Psalm 115 and Psalm 118. And a fourth and final cup of wine would be poured. And by this time, their hearts should be filled with praise and gratitude as they had recalled God's deliverance, God's promises of how he accomplished those in the past, of the Redeemer who was to come. And they would drink the fourth cup of wine. And at that point, the feast would be over. And they would have enjoyed, they would have enjoyed several hours together of joyful and and celebratory and spontaneous celebration of God's love. But now, on this night, as they come to the end of the meal, something drastically changes. And when we come to verse 17, well, verse 16, Jesus says, I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. And then he takes the cup. This is the fourth cup the fourth cup after the singing of those last two psalms. And he says, take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. Jesus is saying he will not eat any more of the Passover meal. This is the last time that he will do it. Why? Because it is about to be fulfilled when the kingdom of God comes. His death and resurrection 1 Corinthians 5 says, Christ, our Passover, has been sacrificed. So Jesus, Jesus fulfilled the Passover. 
There's no need now to continue to observe the Passover meal. And so that's why he says, here, take this cup and divide it among yourselves. He's saying the Passover cup is no longer needed. There's no need now annually to observe this. And then beginning in verse 18, in verse 19, he institutes what we call the Lord's Supper, this table before us, okay? Now, what is a sacrament? In the Presbyterian church, as in most Protestant churches, not all, we have two sacraments, baptism and the Lord's Supper. Baptism and the Lord's Supper. Those are the only two sacraments that we have. What is a sacrament? A sacrament is an ordinary thing that is given very special meaning. In this case, small pieces of bread and juice. We don't even use real wine. What is called the fruit of the vine. Ordinary things that are given special meaning. Just like in baptism, you have the ordinary element of water and it's given special meaning. Now, at your house, I would assume you probably have a drawer or a box or somewhere. And if, and I, if I was a total stranger and went to your house and you said, here, look in this drawer, I'd open it up and there maybe be these trinkets. There might be a rock. There might be half of a movie ticket. There might be an empty Coke can. And there might be a seashell. And I say, what are these? Oh, well, that's a shell I found back when I was engaged and we went on this, we were on this beach. Oh, and that Coke can, that's a Coke I bought when I got to go to the World Series right there. Oh, and that movie, that was that special date. That was the first date I had with my spouse. You know, and I say, this, this is junk. This is just ordinary stuff. But yes, to you, it's special. And I'm not saying those are sacraments. But in a sacrament, you have ordinary things that were given, acquire, they acquire special meaning, and that's what we have with the Lord's Supper. And so Jesus takes the ordinary elements of bread and wine. And in verse 19, he speaks first of the bread. He said it's food now for our souls. He refers to it as his body. The bread shows us how we are satisfied in Christ since he has paid for our sins. And so we eat. We do this in remembrance of how he died for me, that I was born into this life spiritually dead, that God's punishment for sin is death, that I must die for my sin just like you must die for your sin because God is a righteous judge, and yet he promised to send a substitute, a redeemer. Jesus is God the Son. He became a man. He lived a perfect life. Then he allowed himself to be crucified to become the substitute where the death penalty that I deserve was put on him. And God takes my sin, he put it on him, and he punished him in my place. And so he died for me. And so as I have faith in that, then my sins are forgiven because of what Christ did. When I eat the bread, when I take this ordinary element of bread and eat it, I am saying to myself and to others, I trust in what Jesus did, that this bread is symbolic of the body of Christ. And then in verse 20, he mentions the cup. That represents the shedding of his blood. It's a sign of the covenant made with us. And so the important thing as we come to the Lord's table and as we partake of the elements is I realize this is for me. It's very individual. This is for me, that this I believe in this, that he died for me, not just for people in general, but for me specifically that I need this, that I've embraced Christ as my Savior. i put my faith in his work on the cross. Well, as we come in just a few moments, I want to give you three key applications. And I did not take the time 
because I went overtime at the first service. I didn't take the time to read from 1 Corinthians 11. 1 Corinthians 11 is the premier chapter in the New Testament of instruction on how to partake of the Lord's Supper. Now, two times within the past few months, I have been approached, one through email with someone I did not know, the other by a friend of mine in person, over this idea of what does it mean to take of the Lord's Supper in a worthy manner. And in both of those cases, those individuals hear the word from the pastor like me saying, we, you know, partake in a, in a, don't partake in an unworthy manner. And they applied it like, I'm not worthy. I'm not worthy. I've got a keen sense of my sin. I can't come to the Lord's table if I'm supposed to be worthy. And as I said to one of them, wait, you're misunderstanding. 1 Corinthians 11 does not say we partake because we are worthy. It warns us not to partake in an unworthy manner, that we not partake without recognition of what we are doing. So here are some of my explanations to help explain what I mean by that, what I think the Bible means. We come to exalt God. We come to the Lord's table with reverence. We don't come with silliness or um, levity, but we come with reverence as we reflect on the death of Christ because of our sins. So there should be reverence, but joined with that, reverence is celebration and joy. It's not, a, it's not somber. We don't come with a morbid attitude or with sadness because we celebrate the gospel here today. We celebrate a Lord's Supper that commemorates the, the death of Christ. How long do we do this? How long are we to partake? Jesus said, until he comes again. So that's, we think about this is here and now, but we do this because he is coming again. And so that's why we come, not to celebrate a church or celebrate religion or a tradition. We celebrate that Christ has redeemed us. Second application, and that is from 1 Corinthians 11, and that is we are to examine ourselves. It says in verses 26 to 28 of 1 Corinthians 11, Therefore, whoever eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. So we are, we are called upon by the Scriptures to examine ourselves as we come to the Lord's Supper. Now, what do we examine? Well, I would just urge you, don't ever be satisfied with where you are in serving Christ. Don't ever be satisfied with where you are in serving Christ. Do be satisfied with your redemption. Do be very satisfied that you can't make yourself more right with God once you are right with Him. But don't be satisfied with where you are in your service for Christ. Even the Apostle Paul said, I press on toward the mark. I run the race in such a way that I may win. So we're to examine ourselves before we come to the Lord's table. Now, this is subjective. This will be different for each of us. But let me tell you some of the questions I asked myself yesterday as I was trying not only to prepare for this sermon, but also to prepare to come to the Lord's table this morning. Here's some of the things I ask myself. Is my relationship with God healthy? Am I pursuing holiness? Am I resisting temptation and putting sin to death? 
Am I growing in my use of the means of grace, like prayer and worship and the scriptures and obedience? Am I confessing my sins regularly? Am I seeking to present every single aspect of my being as a living sacrifice for God? For those of us that are husbands and fathers, men, are you spiritual leaders in your home? Are you a person of integrity? Am I generous? Do I value people? Do they feel valued by me? Am I praying for others on a regular basis? Have I been a good steward of the time God has given me? Have I used that time to make every opportunity for service to Christ? I, I attend and, and lead more funerals than I would than if I was not a pastor. And I rarely walk through a cemetery uh, that I don't try to notice what's written on headstones, footstones, and sometimes you'll see some interesting things written there. Sometimes they're almost humorous. Sometimes they're sad, the death of a child, and so forth. But always, on every footstone I've seen, there's the person's name, and then what's the date? The date is when they were born. Y'all with me? <laughs> and then the other date, to the right, is when the person died, and what's between the two dates? A dash. Now that dash represents your life and my life. That little dash right there, that's, that's all my life. And so are you making that dash count in your service to Christ? I try to think about these things in coming to the Lord's table. Does my use of time reflect what I say are the priorities of my life? Does it truly reflect loving God and loving others and serving people? Have I been a good steward of relationships? I'll put them in terms of questions to you. Do you offer words of encouragement to your spouse or your children and your other family members or whatever, your brothers or sisters, your parents? Do you offer words of encouragement to your friends or co-workers? Are your relationships with others healthy? Do you have unresolved conflict with another person? If so, is it in your power to resolve that conflict? What steps can you take before the communion service to do so? Do I have hatred or racism in my heart? Have I said anything unkind and hurtful to another person which I should confess? Have I lied to anyone to whom I can confess? Do I have a Christian friend who loves me enough to caution me about a dangerous activity in my life? Do I have a friend I am losing because I haven't taken the time to nourish my relationship with them? Have you been a good steward of money? Are you being responsible for what God has entrusted to you? Are you being generous? Are you saving appropriate amounts of money so as to be able to give as the Lord leads? Are you desiring so much that you're becoming enslaved to debt? Does my use of money reflect my priorities of putting God first? Are you being a good steward of your relationship with God? I, I read a survey that said in America, 7 out of 10 people who claim to be Christians say that they need to spend more time on their own personal spiritual matters. Do you prepare your heart for worship? Did you prepare your heart for worship today? Did you pause even to pray or read a psalm or two last night or this morning in preparation? Do you make it a priority to pray each day? Do you seek to meditate on his word day and night and to love him with your heart, soul, mind, and strength? Are you putting sin to death? Are you reminding yourself daily of the truths of the gospel and God's grace? Are you about his mission of making disciples of all nations? We could go on and on. So I think... That's just a portion of things as we talk about examining ourselves to this. We live in a strange state. This is the biblical mode of rededication. Y'all know that term? Many of you know that term, rededicate? That's what we're doing when we come to the Lord's table. Third application. 
We come to the Lord's table not only to exalt him, not only having examined ourselves, but last of all and briefly to expect his return. We come contemplating the return of Christ. Does Jesus often seem far away? Well, you know when his return will be, what the Bible, the word it uses? Soon. Now, I don't know how that translates into days or years or decades or millennia, but I know it's sooner rather than later, and it's going to be sooner than most of us think that it is. So this meal, this sacrament, is a foreshadowing of the great marriage supper of the Lamb that will take place in heaven. In that sense, and I don't mean to be trite, it's an appetizer for a great feast that will come when we are with him. Do you know Christ today? The great thing about, another great thing of the Lord's Supper is it should bring us to a point of decision. Because this is for believers. We can't tell you, I can't say who it's for out here. You have to make that call. Are you trusting in Christ? Is your trust in Him? Or are you not? If you've not yet come to faith in Christ, you need to realize you've got the same problem we all have. That we've sinned against God that that sin demands God's punishment, and the punishment is death, that there's nothing you can do or I can do to improve ourselves or live some way to earn his merit to overcome your problem of sin, that Jesus chose to become a man, he lived a perfect life, he scored a 100 on God's test, so to speak, and then he allowed himself to be crucified, he died as a substitute, so he takes the punishment that your sin deserves. And so when you trust in him, you get his hundred, you get his perfect righteousness imputed to you, credited to your account, and then his death on your behalf is pays for your sin. When you have faith in him, you're made a new creature in Christ, and all things become new, and you'll have a desire to follow him, and you have the promise of heaven. That's what we're talking about. Let's pray together. Our Father, thank you for Christ. Thank you that now as we come to this sacrament that you have ordained, we pray that you would keep your promise and be with us in a very special way. Uh, we didn't invent this. We didn't think it up. But these, this is from you. And so we submit ourselves to you. We do pray that you would give us each clarity, maybe more clarity than we've ever had, as to whether we are trusting in Christ, whether we truly believe or whether we are playing games with you or living more of an atheistic, agnostic life than we recognize. In Jesus' name, amen. I invite you to take your order of worship and the hymn